this time of year, I don't know about you guys, uh, the other night we had a, a Vigo event here at the church, and um, it was kind of exciting. But the uh, afterwards we went home and watched The Great Pumpkin Keeper with Charlie Brown. You guys ever see that? And um, it's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Every time we come to this time of year, and I know it's a time where we're reminded it's Halloween. When I was in fifth grade, we had a music teacher, and she, there was a song, it, it kind of went like this, October's here, number 31, and that's the night that we have fun, we're gonna rock, rock this Halloween. Okay, so we had, we had that song. I know, I can't sing like you, Dave. But every time we get to this time of year, I don't know about you guys, what comes to my mind is the topic of spiritual warfare. You see people dressed in all kinds of costumes in various forms, and, and, and I'm thinking of the party where they say, okay, it's a harvest party, you need to dress as a Bible character. So somebody dressed like Jesus when the disciples saw him out on the water and they said, it's a ghost. So somebody wore that costume to the Christian harvest party. Then this little girl over here, she dressed up um, like the witch of Endor. And so those things are in the Bible, I'm just saying. Um, but a lot of times there's a more serious element to this side of, not just this time of year, but really what we're talking about is life. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we know from scripture that Satan is real and he's accompanied by a whole host of demons. Satan is not somebody to mess with. It's not a laughing matter. It's not a little costume with red antlers or horns. And this morning, I want us just to look at a little verse in the Bible. I don't know if you guys remember the TV series Survivor. I used to love watching it. And I loved watching it. I loved watching it. And then it got to so many seasons, I stopped watching it. I'm just confessing. But it, I'm sure it's still a great show. But the, the, the name of the game was to outwit, outlast, and outplay. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly what our enemy, the devil, tries to do. To outwit, to outlast, and to outplay. So this morning, before we go to the message, I want us to bow with a word of prayer. I don't know about you, but Tony said this when he spoke on spiritual warfare. It's been a week of facing a number of uphill battles. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and God knows, God is greater, but Satan knows, that, God knows that when we preach on spiritual warfare, the enemy is going to come against us. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and our hearts. And God, we just ask you to lead. We ask you to move. We ask you to work because you are greater. He who is in us is greater than anything in the world, including the enemy, Satan, the evil one. So today, God, I pray that as we guard our hearts, we guard our minds, Lord, as you watch over our souls. Speak to us. I don't know if it's going to be something new, a reminder of something old, or God, you instructing us on what we need to do to live victoriously. Because God, that's what you've called us to, to live victoriously. The power is found in you. The strength is found in you. And it's found in the person of Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, who conquered sin and death and hell and Satan and his demons. And God, you call us to press forward in this life, trusting in you. We look to you right now if we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to draw your attention just to a simple verse, a little verse. If you grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I don't know if the Monday night Bible study already got there or not, but 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and a little tiny verse, verse 11. If you haven't gotten there, you're headed that way, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, a little tiny verse. It's a verse that's captured my attention because, and here's what it says. It's just a snippet. It says this, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. His schemes. Do you know what Satan's schemes are? 
And when I look at this verse, first of all, it raises the reality of spiritual warfare. That Satan has schemes, he has attacks, he has clever strategies. He has ways of operating that are designed to trap us, to trick us. There's no trick or treat. It's just trick. And then it, it points to the existence of Satan. That Satan is real, not a myth, not a fictitious character. And that he has a number of schemes, they're plural, a variety of ways. He has a host of demons. He has tactics by which he would try to discourage us, to disillusion us, to discredit God, discredit Christ, to defeat us, and ultimately destroy us in this journey of drawing close to Jesus and living the Christian life. His name Satan. It's actually a Hebrew word that carries over into the Greek meaning adversary. In 2 Corinthians, the book itself, Paul will refer to Satan as the serpent, and as Belial, and as the god of this age. And elsewhere, he will refer to Satan as the tempter, the evil one, the devil, the prince of the power of the air. Many names for Satan in scripture, and Paul was no stranger to spiritual warfare. He wanted God's people to defend and to fight against it. He raises the awareness of Satan coming against them in many, many places. Tony Coleus gave an excellent sermon back in September on the 24th on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Put on the full armor of God for a battle and, and we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Paul wrote quite extensively on the topic of spiritual warfare. And just some facts. Fast facts about Satan. This isn't all you need to know, but first of all, Scripture refers to him as the God of this age, with a small g. Satan rules in this age, permeating, infesting, and even trying to control the, the minds, the lives of unbelievers. Second of all, he's the deceiver of the human race. He surfaced in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. He comes as the serpent. He is the archenemy of God. He reigns over sinners, Acts 26, 18. He attempts to deceive Christians, Ephesians 6 and Matthew 24. He creates deceptive wonders. He masquerades as an angel of light. He was defeated in God's plan by Jesus at Christ's birth. He could not tempt Jesus into sin, Matthew chapter 4. He was defeated by Jesus' death, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. And Colossians 2.15, he is doomed for eternity. Read about his allotment, his place in hell in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. And yet Paul, alluding to the spiritual reality, he wants us to know in this verse the battle is real. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So what are some of the schemes of the devil? And there's a couple of authors I like to highlight that have written more fictional or satirical works. Frank Peretti shared some of his thoughts about the reality of spiritual warfare in the book This Present Darkness and um, Piercing the Darkness and other books. He makes it clear he's just writing fiction. But it's imaginative interpretation over how he sees the spiritual realm to be. C.S. Lewis also writes about spiritual warfare, and the work is termed as satirical. Again, it's a work of fiction, the Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is a Christian classic, highlighting some of the ways the enemy can work, and it was based on C.S. Lewis's observations as he became a Christian in his adult life, and he watched and observed the temptations that Christians face. So in this book, um, just understanding C.S. Lewis, he became a Christian in an older age. It was in the 1930s, his adult years. His, his conversion is described as a gradual process. He took a lot of convincing and he would sit down and have discussions and debates with J.R.R. Tolkien and with Hugo Dyson along with reading Christian literature. He was highly intellectual. He really questioned before he, he settled on what he believed. 
But once he took hold of it, he grabbed it, and he became one of the most influential Christian writers of the 20th century, one of the best apologeticists, writing on apologetics, defending the faith through his writings. And so he dedicates this book, Screwtape Letters, to J.R.R. Tolkien. He says, to J.R.R. Tolkien, to whose kindness, patience, and unceasing encouragement, I owe more than I can express. It's exciting to think that one life could rub off on another, could rub off on another, and God uses people, God can use you to lead others to the Lord, and they can go out and make an incredible difference. And so here's how the story of the Screwtape Letters came about. As Clive walked up the hill, an image came to his mind. He had just attended the 8 a.m. Holy Communion service at Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Oxford, England. 8 a.m. because he had a lifelong disdain for organ music. And so we're thinking of starting, by the way, at the 9 o'clock hour again. You won't get any loud music. So you could, if, if you don't like the organ music, you can come at 9. But he went at 8 a.m. every Sunday. Today, on this day, as he made his way home, the, quote, image of a poor soul making his life's pilgrimage, escorted by a guardian angel on one hand, a fallen angel on the other hand, filled his mind. Maybe you've seen that cartoon before, where you got the little dark angel on one side, whispering voices into the character's ear, and the white angel on the other, trying to keep him on the right way. Some wonder what the sermon was about that day. Both whisper, angels whispered voices in his head, although often the guardian angel, it, it's written, seemed more silent. War, of course, would be raging, wrote the biographer William Griffin. By the way, he lived, this was in the 1940s now, he lived in the time of World War II. But the real battle would be taking place on spiritual firmament. Good angel would have to do battle with bad angel. Instead of trying to create a blitzkrieg of Miltonic proportions, however, Lewis decided to pitch the battle at a somewhat lower level, an individual level, a personal level. Lewis's regular confessions, recounted biographer A.N. Wilson, brought before Lewis the drama of redemption, that it being of a perpetual game of cat and mouse with the devil. Now we had a book group a couple of years ago at Connie's house, and I want to thank Judy for being a key part of that and influencing us to choose the book, The Screwtape Letters, because to go through it, uh, to read through it, it's kind of like getting the shovel and you're kind of digging deep. It, on surface, it's hard to fully grasp everything he's saying, but as you reflect on it, it becomes clear. The battles, the, the games that Satan plays. And it was this image, this experience that sparked the vision behind C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Again, it's a fictional account. But in scripture, we're reminded of this. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. What? Seeking somebody to, to paw or to claw or to pat or to push? No. Seeking someone to devour. And, and, and I want to also make clear the concept in this book that there's a demon assigned to every person. It's not something you'll find in the Bible. Although it's kind of a part of folklore and in custom of certain tradition. But in the book, this is kind of how C.S. Lewis characterizes it. There is a demon called Wormwood, who is a junior demon, who reports to Screwtape. And throughout the book, 31 chapters, Screwtape is writing to Wormwood telling him how to afflict the patient, which is the person. So, looking at this, I just want to point out four primary battlefields of personal and spiritual attack in the life of every person, in the life of every believer. And just as Jesus, when asked the question, what is the first and greatest commandment? He said the first and greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Amen. Each of those four areas represent primary battlefields of the enemy. The enemy can attack our allegiance and devotion. 
The enemy can try to insert or interject thoughts in our head. The enemy can create a sense of spiritual unrest, of hopelessness, of dissatisfaction, or even separation from God. The enemy can attack physically and emotionally and mentally and socially, all areas. All in an attempt to defeat us spiritually by weakening our faith. I mean, I'm, I didn't have a heart attack this morning and it wasn't even close, but I felt these sharp pains in my chest. And I thought, what in the world is going on as I was preparing this talk? And, and it just felt and there are things we see in our world, in our lives, in our homes that seem like the presence of the evil one. I'll repeat a little bit what Tony had said is that when we talk about Satan, we're talking about the host of, of darkness, the army of, of, of demons, that there's very little chance you and I have encountered Satan directly. He's not like God, omnipresent. It's just one being. But Satan and his demons, we say Satan, we're probably referring to his army of demons. They come at us with attack. Well, there are several, you know, I mentioned 31 chapters in the Screwtape Letters. I'm just going to give a few observations of the different techniques, tactics, or schemes of Satan that C.S. Lewis writes about in his satirical work. The first point I want to make is that one of the first levels of attack is to keep them fuddled. To keep them fuddled. And, and so here is our patient, and he's not a Christian. But he's coming upon some information that might cause him to, to wonder, to wonder if faith is real. And Screwtape writes to Wormwood and he says, listen, don't try to argue with him. Don't, don't try to, to persuade him with logic or reasoning. Because arguing awakens a person's reasoning. They start, start to really think more critically and ask more questions. Instead, keep the patient focused on the present, on what's in front of him. The pressure of the ordinary, the urgency of the now. And, and, and he shared that he had one patient who was a sound atheist. And when he saw him going the wrong way, looking into spiritual things, he, he attacked him with this thought, hey, it's time for lunch. Don't you think you should go get something to eat? And when you get something to eat now, you can come back with a little bit more perspective. You'll be ready to study. But after the, the lunch, Screwtape writes, he said, I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper. Then I showed him number 73 bus going past. And before he knew it, the man's thoughts were somewhere else. He never came back to his quest for the truth. He never came back to study. He kept him fuddled. He focused on what was right in front of them. He's a focus on what is right in front of them, and they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. By the way, back in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis also wrote this. He, nobody cares if something is true or false anymore. The news media has trained people to live with tons of contradictory ideas, which people evaluate not as true or false, but as practical or contemporary or academic. Because of this, it's better to simply confuse the patient with jargon than to argue with them. Screwtape warned Wormwood against getting the patient to argue because arguing would just lead him to more questions and a fierce defense and even a quest for truth. Keep them fertile, but second of all, keep them disappointed. Keep him disappointed, and in chapter 2, Screwtape is really upset because somehow Wormwood has let the patient become a Christian. <laughs> the patient got saved. Those of us who are Christians know the joy of a newfound faith. That excitement of a relationship with God, coming to Him and having, having that new life, that sense of joy. And He fills us with purpose. Everything is fresh. It's exciting. But cause the Christian to look around, to look around him, to look at other things, and you can cause him to become discouraged. Even though the patient has become a Christian, Screwtape lets Wormwood know, not all is lost here. 
Get him to focus on disappointment in the church. So he's going to go to this church, this new thing, and, and he's going to sit in the row and he's going to look at his neighbor. And as he looks at the people around him, Lewis writes, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like, quote unquote, the body of Christ. And then the actual faces in the next pew. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Get them to look at others with a, a judgmental and a critical spirit. Get them to see, and he writes, whatever idea he had in his head of what a Christian was supposed to look like, let him look at those around him and then compare them to himself and be smug. He can be smug about who he is and he can look at the sins of others and, well, God's gonna let them into heaven, look at me and get him to focus on the anti-climax of his newfound faith. Again, when one comes to Christ, there's that heightened emotion, this awareness, this new reality, but after a while, just like maybe in a new relationship or in marriage, after a while, the, the newness can wear off. And then you've got to realize and get to the real task of living together. And there's times where the motion fades and you realize that you've got things to do. You've got, you've got to make it on your own. This transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. And that's where dryness, spiritual dryness can set in that relationship with God that realizes, okay, this is a journey. This is a commitment. This is a, a relationship. It's devotion, but it's not always fun. And it's not always easy. And sometimes we're going to face the headwinds. And boy, it sure, sure was a lot easier when I wasn't a Christian until we start to think about it again. No, it really wasn't easier at all. Lewis, through a screw tape, told Wormwood, if they can overcome the first challenge, they can become less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. The lesson for you and I here is that when tempted, when facing a spiritual battle, if we can make it through, we will find ourselves more strengthened and more courageous to face many more. The, the ability to press on further will become easier and it'll be harder for Satan to knock us down. But if Wormwood could keep the new convert looking down on others around him while retaining a certain smugness about himself, he might succeed. Screwtape warns and writes, many humans have followed their creator for a time only to return to evil. But here's another area of Satan's attack, a major one. Satan attacks relationships. Satan attacks relationships. And in the case of the patient, it was his relationship with his mom. There was already conflict. There was already friction. It had been going on for a long time. Think of somebody in your life where you've had this conflict and this struggle. But in this case, Screwtape tells Wormwood, I want you to get in touch with the demon who's in charge of your mom. And maybe you guys can come up with ways to stir up conflict together. Also, Wormwood, tell the patient to focus on his lofty inner life now that he's a Christian. Well, at the same time, criticizing others for their annoying habits. When they pray, get them to pray for that soul of the person or for those things about the person that annoy them. That way you can keep them focused on everything that annoys them about them while maintaining his pious self-righteousness about himself. Get them to pray for the imaginary person. Don't pray for anything that's going to have a real effect on the person like their rheumatoid arthritis. Being satirical, what he's saying is pray as if you care about the person. Because it is easier if we want to gloss over. We, Lord, we pray for that sinner to see ourselves not as we should. But to look down. Keep them praying for the other sins and weaknesses and he will constantly be reminded about what annoys him about them. And then Satan loves to sow seeds of friction and division, spite and contention. And Satan attacks the church. Satan attacks the church and in the context of this, 
One point in the book, Screwtape tells Wormwood to get the patient to start visiting a lot of different churches. Have them check it out. Not having a commitment to one. Get them caught up in the consumer mentality so that they can look down and nitpick everything that they don't like about each one. That they can pull it apart and find dissatisfaction everywhere they go. And Satan loves to attack church members. He loves to get believers to attack one another. This is one of Satan's primary battlefields. If God likes to add, Satan likes to subtract. And if God wants to multiply, Satan wants to divide. And sometimes my daughter Delilah was doing her math the other night, sixth grade math, and she's coming up with the um, greatest common divisor and the least common denominator over these decimals that she converts to fractions using big numbers. Oftentimes Satan will kind of boil it down to that least common denominator or that weakest link, whatever he can do to impact the most people. Satan seeks to divide, he seeks to destroy. Satan attacks the Christian's prayer life. His goal is to keep the Christians from prayer. And he says, if, if they're going to pray, try to influence it. Make sure it's mindless recitation of little prayers they might have said as a kid. Nothing deep, nothing personal. Keep it superficial with airs of peace and love, never doing battle. Tempt them to try to create feelings within themselves, moving their attention away from God. So when they say they're praying for forgiveness, let them try to feel forgiven. Put that focus back on themselves. Keep them focused on objects like that crucifix over there or the altar here. Get them praying to certain objects and not to God himself. Discourage them in prayer. Keep them caught up with current events. And a lot of this screw tape letters was written in the, as World War II was raging. And there was a lot of fear and there's a lot of doubt. There was a lot of anxiety going on. There was a lot of turbulence, a lot of trouble. And he's living there in Oxford, England. You know, you can almost picture the Germans sending their, their planes and dropping bombs. Well, the enemy, forces of darkness, know. And I'm thinking about the day that we live in today. I'm thinking even about people all around the world. The enemy knows that we as humans can be filled with doubts and anxieties when it comes to war. Look at the rioting and the protesting in the streets. I heard on the news you couldn't even get through parts of Portland because the streets were flooded with people protesting war. And war results in death. There's a lot of death in war. But war can also lead to thousands of people turning to the Lord. Amen. That's often what we can hope or pray for. And Screwtape warns Wormwood not to become content or overconfident as the Christian wrestles with these conflicts, these conflicted thoughts in his mind. But he says, get their faith focused on politics. Whether it's being the adamant patriot, defense at all costs, or the total pacifist. No, we shouldn't take up arms. If you can get them tied down with the religion of politics, you can take their eyes off Jesus and what the real battle, where the real battle lies. But it's not just with war. The enemy uses this tactic. He says in many schemes where people are drawn to one or another extremes, but missing the real focus, the real mark of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And then the last point I want to make from his book, and there's a lot more. Screwtape talks to Wormwood about the awareness of the demonic. It's kind of like the question, should I let him know we're here or should I try to be invisible? And Lewis addresses this whole issue in the, the front, the preamble to his book where he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We can become over-consumed by our study of, our worry about, our fears, our emphasis on the demonic. 
But there's another danger of ignoring it completely and not considering it at all. I go back to 2 Corinthians 2.11, for we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. We need to be aware. And as we looked at these, I believe there are seven areas. I don't know if you can identify any areas in which Satan has been attacking you or has attacked you in the past. One of the most prominent is that the enemy attacks our minds, trying to interject thoughts. The enemy tries to divide our hearts, our allegiance and devotion, whether it's through materialism or, or through work or through worry or through other things. The enemy is after our soul. And C.S. Lewis, kind of depends on your theology perhaps, but C.S. Lewis and, and Screwtape through Wormwood did feel like even though a person has come to Christ, they can still turn away and, and, and resort back to evil if we can get them, if we can trap them. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And yet even with that, we need to be careful as Christians that we're not fighting on the wrong side of the battle. There is this sense of being aware of Satan's attacks, but there's another sense of the power and the strength and the victory that are ours in Jesus. Our focus is not so much to be on the enemy as it is to be on our Lord and Savior. To, to call on Him and, and let Him fight those battles. And we can fight it through prayer. We can fight it through God's Word and some other resources He's given us. When I was in college, I had a, a psychology professor and he had gone up to Alaska in his um, clinical studies. And up in Alaska, according to him, there was a lot of mental illness. At least he dealt with a lot. He saw a lot of demonic activity through mental illness and had some strong thoughts. For example, anytime somebody is suicidal, or has had a suicidal thought, he would say there's always a demon there. It's a demon thought. In cases of rape or incest or extreme abuse, there's a demon there aiding it on, pushing it. He, that's how he would portray the spiritual battle. And Dr. Captain, he gave five levels of demonic activity that were part of his tool belt. There's temptation, that's where demons try to insert thoughts into our minds, try to tempt us through suggestion. There's vexation, which is a spiritual attack that's more like a pinprick. More than a temptation, it's just a little more pressure, but then there's hexation, like a constant harassment. The devil won't get off my back. It's, a lot of these are hard to put your finger on unless you're, you're in there. Oppression, he described as a dark cloud. The enemy just has a dark cloud around that person or that situation, or that group of people. See, this isn't just an individual thing. This can be for a body of believers, a church. It could be for an area. Possession, bodily control. Now, I look at this, and I look at C.S. Lewis, and I look at Frank Peretti, and I'm like, where do these guys get this stuff? I was given, I have a big stack of books on spiritual warfare in my library and my dad's been very helpful. Um, somebody gave me a four volume gift set and I showed it to him many years ago and he said, well, be careful of that author. They don't really line up with scripture. I want to say it to you guys that whatever you hear, whatever you receive, whatever you learn, weigh it against the word of God. The word of God is our authority. God has enabled, I do believe, some people to have these insights that can be helpful to kind of clarify, bring to light, bring to surface some issues in the spiritual battle. And Lewis just wrote about what he observed a Christian faces in spiritual attack. But Satan has a number of tactics. And we are not to be unaware of his schemes. But Satan is also nothing comp compared to the person, the power, and the strength and victory that are ours through Jesus Christ. What are some of the areas that we can have victory in the Christian life? 
At one point, one chapter in the screw tape letters, screw tape writes to Wormwood and expresses alarm because the patient has experienced repentance through confession. He confessed his sins, even though he was a Christian, he had let sins build up in his life, in his heart, and when he confessed them, it was almost like a rededication, a coming back, where he sensed that, that glorious entrance again of the Holy Spirit's power and of his joy. Confession and repentance is one of the keys, one of the gifts God's given us to come against the enemy. And confessing our sin will find strength, will find freedom. To repent, to turn back to God, will sense His power and His strength. And then there's humility. Humility being that sense of, of asking God for the strength not to solve all my problems now and evermore instantaneously. But God, I humbly come before you in dependence for living day to day. How many times do we not, are we not aware of our own pride being kind of this wall, but also giving power over to our enemy? Asking God to meet us hourly, to help us handle daily temptations. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that no temptation has seized you. But what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will provide a way out, a way of escape. So you can stand up under it. And to realize the power and strength for living, humbly asking God. Giving to him our emotions, our doubts, our thoughts, our worries, our failures and our fears. Coming to God in prayer. But not coming to Him in just surface prayer, but fervent prayer. To pray without ceasing. To be real about our prayers, to be honest to God. A couple of things that have sometimes helped me, Bill Hybels wrote a book called Honest to God, and he talked about every day he took out two pieces of paper. On the one piece of paper he would write yesterday, and he'd write about everything he did, and then what he went through, and what he accomplished. But on the second piece of paper, he'd write out his prayer to God. I have, I told you I had some rough days this week. They weren't, but it was tough. I had some good times too. But there was just a struggle. There was a struggle so much in this worship team that you came up here. There, we were without a worship team and I, I, I headed all the way to Saturday without a plan. At 11.09 on Friday night, Brian Rose texted me. I'm in, I'll show up. He was an answer to prayer. Okay, Lord, I've got Brian, i got me. And so then I wrote out my prayer to God Saturday morning, God, for a worship team. I reached out to one and then another and then another. And Dave says, hey, want me to contact John? You bet, I'll call Tony. Canada said yes. And, and you know, and God, God answered, that was like real. And in, 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 in full transparency, I went through a time in the last week of spiritual dryness. And, I, and, and even as a pastor, I have times of doubt. And it's like, okay, God. It's kind of like when Naaman was told to dip into the Jordan River seven times. And well, come on, we got better waters in Jordan. I'm not going to put up with this. This is a nonsense. How many of you ever struggle with that? I don't want to go to church. I don't want to take the time. It's going to use up half my day. Certainly nothing's going to happen. And then you go and you're like, okay, God. I realize that there's a reason for this, that you're, you show up and your people, it's not magic, but it's God. It's the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I had this moment, okay, God, uh, this was yesterday. God, I need, I don't want to read your word. I don't want to open the Bible. I feel like I've done it all, but okay, God, I will. So I read the last chapter of Second Chronicles, and then I looked at my reading plan, and I needed to start in Nehemiah, and I opened it up to the genealogies. And if you've ever opened it to this list of names and people and where they went and how many there were, okay, God, this is okay. But I read the genealogies, and I read seven to the end of the book, and I'm like, when I got done, I just felt this sense of strength and power that could only come from the Lord. Not the genealogies, but from the Lord. Okay, so God's Word. 
just realize two things here. And I told, gave you my caution. You got to be careful about what's been written, even on spiritual warfare and what you believe. Weigh it against scripture. Satan used God's word in Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted by the devil. And he twisted it and he distorted it. He did the same. He tried to do the same thing that he did with Eve there in the garden. And so reading God's word, understanding God's word, but knowing how to rightly divide the word of truth, how to appropriately apply the truth of God's word. It's a key to sharpening your sword, to wielding your sword in the battle. Satan fought the devil with scripture and the devil tried to fight back, but he was getting it all wrong. And, and Jesus knew that and he rebuked him for that. We have got to really study and hide God's word in our heart and know how to apply it correctly. There's a spiritual armor found in Ephesians chapter six. But the last one I want to talk about real briefly is this. Forgiveness. Because. We read this verse that said in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes and that little verse captures my attention to say, do you guys know what the schemes of the enemy are? Do you know what Satan uses in your life to, to, to trip you up, to trap you down, to trick you, to deceive you, to discourage you, to destroy you? But if you back up the few verses there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and the title in my Bible says, Forgiveness for the Sinner. Apostle Paul is writing, verse 5, he says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Some things in the Bible, when you first read them, they may be confusing or hard to understand. But the context here is Paul was probably attacked in some way. He was probably offended, wronged, harmed. But Paul has already forgiven this person in his heart. This, this, whatever this was has caused dissension in the church. And he urges others now to forgive this person. And this is for the unity of the body of Christ. Because division is one of Satan's greatest schemes. Paul is saying this, forgiveness is an essential part of, of spiritual warfare. Refusal to forgive can lead to bitterness. Bitterness can lead to a hard heart and, 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 and um, a stronghold. A foothold can go to a stronghold in our life. And the enemy will use that against you and he'll use it to bring even the whole body down. So this morning as we go into communion, the Lord's Supper, and ask the worship team to come up right now. And my simple question is this, what, what battles are you facing right now in your life? Where has Satan used his schemes to bring in attack? Can you think of any? Whether it's discouragement or doubt or disillusionment or depression. Where has Satan tried to divide? Where has he tried to defeat? Clearly, clearly his purpose is to destroy, to devour. And is your heart right with God? Have you asked him for forgiveness? Is there any forgiveness you need to ask of others? Have you gone out and forgiven them? Forgiveness is so important to have a clear path of re reconciliation, to be in right relationship with each other. Can you recognize the enemy's schemes?
Stand with me as we sing this next song. And I'm going to ask Larry. And I'm going to ask Tony, who's playing guitar. <laughs> Callum, would you and uh, Larry come? And John McAdoo, would you three gentlemen come and serve communion? The Lord's Supper. Candace is going to lead us in this next song. I need you. Let's sing and pray this together. Your son 
his very life. He gave himself for us. He died for our sins and arose from the grave. He died to bring us new life that is found only in you and only through our Savior's blood. These elements are symbols. They're representative. God, it is finished. Jesus said it on the cross. And God, the new life to which you raised him is, is, is a promise of hope and assurance for all who believe, for those who know you, that we too will receive that gift, the blessed hope of seeing Jesus face to face when he comes again. God, I pray that as we go before you in the Lord's Supper, that we could do so with a clear conscience, with a sound confession of faith, affirming our commitment to you. God, that we would experience from you and from your Holy Spirit renewal, a sense of strength and purpose, a renewed determination and dedication, knowing, Lord, that we can stand in the face of the wiles of the devil. We can stand strong in the midst of a storm. Of a storm. That no matter what happens in this life, God, there is hope with you for eternity. God, in your hands you hold our future. In you there is life. And as we take this, the bread and the cup, we pray for any who don't believe, for any who haven't received all around the world. Lord, we pray for the people in the Middle East, in the nation of Israel, in the area of Palestine, from the top of Lebanon all the way, Saudi Arabia, all those nations where there is a closeness to the gospel. Lord, we pray for people in every continent, in Africa, in South America, in Europe, in the Soviet Union. We pray, Lord, that this gospel will go out to the ends of the earth. We know that after that has happened, then God, you will send your son. Thank you, God, so much for the Lord's Supper. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Apostle Paul wrote, from, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the, the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, the Apostle Paul writes, he took the cup, declaring this cup represents the new covenant that is in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Drink ye all of it. Before you go, I just want to say a big thank you to you guys as a church body, a church family. I know we don't have the shortest church, the church services in town. Maybe someday that'll be different. But thank you for your steadfast dedication and commitment to the Lord, because that's what it's really, that's what it's all about. May God bless you. May you go in peace, love, joy, power, and strength serving the Lord. God bless each one.